Welcome to the Witty and Gritty Podcast, where we believe that lifelong learning and relentless determination are essential to developing your passions and reaching your goals. Here to help you along the way are the hosts of the show. Take it away, ladies. Hey, y'all. I'm Brooke. And I'm Farron. As educators and high achievers, we're passionate about providing our listeners with effective strategies to help navigate life's obstacles and reach your goals sooner. Join us as we break down credible research that gives you a fresh perspective and challenges your limiting beliefs. Laugh and grow as we share personal anecdotes and interviews from people that have demonstrated what it takes to be successful. By implementing these practices, you will develop your unique skill set and learn how to better serve your community. Get your mind right. And enjoy this time designed just for you. Before we get started, we want to tell you about an opportunity for you to have more growth in your relationships. We are so excited to offer our digital course, The Five Rules of Fair Fighting, Resolve Conflicts While Protecting Your Relationship. This course is for anyone who wants to grow and improve your relationships. Someone who wants to stop having the same fight over and over again and getting nowhere. This course is for the person who, quote, doesn't ever fight, but feels there's too much distance and not enough communication. Guys, conflict is inevitable. This course will help you avoid the collateral damage when fighting gets unfair. Join our email list to be the first to hear about the details of the release of The Five Rules of Fair Fighting. Go to wittyandgritty.blog to sign up. And now, back to the show. Episode 62. What you gonna do? I don't know what you gonna do. That was the best intro that came to my mind. Yeah. Usually, So one of the episodes in this miniseries, Farron, opens with a Little Mermaid song, right? It was a Little Mermaid? Yeah. Anyway, y'all, today we are in our interviews portion of the miniseries, Switch on Your Brain, and we have Dr. Joe Paris with us today. Thank you for the invite. Dr. Joe Paris, what are you a doctor of? So I have my doctorate. A lot of times people think I have a PhD. I do not have a PhD. Um, I have a doctorate of ministry, um, which is, I guess, more aptly described as a more practical uh, doctorate degree. So a PhD is a lot more research-based. Um, a doctorate of ministry is more practical, application-based. So typically when you finish a PhD, you write a book. Um, with a doctorate of ministry, you create a project, something that's really practical, hands-on, kind of you could implement it right away. So I created a high school curriculum for Christian schools to prove that Jesus Christ was the son of God. Wow. So are you sure you're not going to write a book about that? Because that sounds, if you can write high school curriculum, then surely the book you can just, it's already there. You just gotta. Yeah. Well, I didn't say it was good high school curriculum. It was just <laughs> curriculum. So, Nonetheless, still no. curriculum. I'm impressed. Yes. I have not written a full high school curriculum about Jesus, but it's, it's proving Jesus is the son of God. Yeah, so I really thought that there was a lot of really good information out there, but I felt that it was um, there was no really like organization to it. And so I really worked on kind of taking a lot of the information and putting it in an organized manner so kids could remember it. And so that was really kind of the emphasis of mine. So I didn't really do a lot of like new research, new ideas. It was more of just packaging. And so I tried to package it in a way that a kid could just re easily in his head categorize some of these arguments for Jesus being the son of God. 
That makes sense. So today we're going to talk about switch on your brain, apologetics and spiritual mindset. But before we dive into all of that, tell us a little bit about yourself. So campus pastor here at Sea Life Church at the Sunnyvale campus and uh, actually came to Sea Life because my wife was in Paul McDill's youth ministry. And uh, so for several years, so uh, Lindsay and I, when we met, Paul did our wedding and uh, so got to know Paul a little bit. And then obviously coming here for, um, to see life anytime we'd visit the family. And so got to know co-pastors really well, got to know Casey Coates really well. And so when they opened campuses three and four at Coffin and in Rockwall, uh, there was an opening. And so they were gracious enough to uh, call me. And so that brought us down here. So uh, married to my wife, Lindsay of 11 years coming up in like, I think, 20 days or something like that. And uh, two little girls, Lola's seven and Harper's five. And so that's kind of our story right now. We go swimming every day. So that's good. You're doing summer, right? So y'all, you are from Peoria? Yes. Peoria, Illinois, born and raised. All right. So thanks for coming to Texas. Yeah. Great addition. So we love Texas. (laughs) So I hear you're an Enneagram three. And you're an Enneagram three. Yes. So this will be this will be fun. We've we've also we have had David on the show, who's also okay. a three. We had Blake Clickner on the show, who's a three. So it'll be interesting to see how the different threes look in. Podcast. Yeah. So that'll be good. Okay, so today we are talking about the power of mindset, science, and Christianity, and your expertise is in apologetics. So before we dive into it, what the heck is apologetics, and can you break it down to where? anyone could understand what it means. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I have my doctorate in apologetics and I absolutely hate using that word apologetics um, because we either one of two things happens. People know what it means and they hate it or people don't know what it means and they get really scared of it. And so I try to never use the word apologetics because either people come with preconceived ideas or they just think you're trying to sound really smart. And so basically I say that apologetics is doing one of two things. It's answering people's questions or objections to the Christian faith, or it's clarifying some misunderstanding. So basically you're answering people's questions or you're helping them clarify maybe some thoughts that they have about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, something of that nature. So if they were to Google their question, is that typically some, something someone would ask you? So instead of like, is Jesus the son of God, Google, they could ask someone who is weathered in the apologetics realm. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and most of the time, so what'll happen is when somebody does that, uh, when they Google it, and this is quite interesting, the first response they'll typically get is from a Mormon website. Um, they're really good at using Google. And so whenever you kind of type something in reference to some Christian you know, term, um, Bible, faith, Jesus, God, salvation, Trinity, anything like that, you're probably gonna end up at a Mormon website first. And so that's where I think sometimes people are like, well, you can just Google stuff, but you have no idea who the author is. And I'm not saying that's even like a bad thing, because, I mean, there's just a spectrum of like who you could get answering questions. And so even when I do that, sometimes before I'll ever read their answer, I kind of have to quickly go and see kind of what presuppositions they're bringing to the table, whether, you know, denomination or religious affiliation, things like that. So there's a little bit of danger in using Google, which I think we all know that. Um, so, or Wikipedia. That's what I was going to say is like, that's good advice for Googling anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely check the source. Yeah. 
Can't believe everything on the internet. (laughs) So what made you passionate about apologetics? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. So um, long story short, I grew up uh, in Christian church, grew up in a very conservative church, very conservative home, um, was saved when my mom told me I was saved when I was five years old. I obviously don't really remember that, um, but I do remember being very active in the church. I was kind of the model kid. Um, you know, I was in a Bible study with my youth pastor, went to all the church camps, did all the summer camps, all the winter camps, um, memorized scripture. I was a quizzer. Um, I did my devotions every day. I mean, I did everything right. And uh, my summer before my senior year of college, I went and worked at a Christian camp just because I really was, you know, wanted to take my faith seriously and, and do something with it. And I came back at the end of the summer, had about two weeks before uh, school started up again. And I went to visit one of my high school friends. And so we were just hanging out at her house and her sister came over and she was an atheist. And I knew she was an atheist. And I kind of knew what an atheist was, but I mean, I really, I just, I, I mean, I just thought, well, she doesn't know Jesus. So I've been telling kids about Jesus all summer. I'll just tell her. And um, little did I know that that was her wheelhouse. And so she was very gracious to me. She's like, do you really want to do this? And I was like, yeah, I was like, let's talk about this. And she just asked me like a barrage of questions that I had never heard before. And pretty, you know, standard questions now, like, you know, evolution's disproven God. Do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? The Bible's full of mistakes. Why would a good God allow bad things to happen? And uh, I remember thinking the whole time she's asking me these questions, why did I ask her to talk about this? Like, I was like, I couldn't get out of the conversation fast enough. And um, I know some people can recover from that. I couldn't. It really shattered my faith, not in a bad way. I wasn't like, I didn't go out and, you know, get a tattoo the next day and start riding motorcycles or something. Um, But I really just was like, wow, like, if what she said is true, then everything that I've always assumed to be true is not. And so for me, it just didn't logically make sense to keep going to church and keep reading my Bible. And so I kept doing that. But all the while, I was doing a lot of research, um, trying to figure out, you know, if who was true. I mean, was the pastor that I had always listened to right? Or was she right? And I realized that whatever side I ended up on had huge implications for my life and was going to determine a lot of my decisions. And so... I ended up obviously weathering that storm and made it out. It was about eight months of just really kind of wrestling with my faith. And, and when I say that, I wasn't looking to leave the faith at all. Like, I think sometimes people look at that and they go, oh, they're questioning their faith. And it's almost seen as like kind of like a, maybe like a moral dilemma or something. I literally every day was like, God, if you would take this away from me, I'd be totally cool with that. Like I'd wake up every day with questions and I wanted to get rid of them, but I just kept having them. And so after weathering that storm, after a couple years later, I just thought if I was the model Christian kid who did everything they told me to do and an atheist could destroy my faith in five minutes, then there's something wrong with the paradigm on the way we're raising kids. And so I went and I got my degree in doctorate in apologetics and started teaching that at a Christian school and kind of felt like after six years of doing that, I, I needed to join the church and, and try to help that way. So what would you say to somebody that feels like having those questions is like bad or share those, then people are going to think that they're not believers. What advice would you give to somebody that might have those questions and might one, feel bad about it. And then two, they're not taking the steps to uh, have them answered. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest frustrations for me is that everybody I talk to feels sinful when they have questions. 
that they're like, Hey, I, I know I shouldn't think this. Um, I know I shouldn't be doubting myself. And, and what I would tell people, the illustration I always gave was imagine going to the doctor with a problem and, and then, you know, being like, Hey, you know, I know I shouldn't have a broken arm or I know I shouldn't be sick. But the reality is you are like, you do have something that needs to be addressed and questions. Honestly, I used to tell my students, the students that I appreciated the most were the students who had questions because they were being honest. The students who were like, I don't have any questions. Like, I just fully believe. I'm like, well, then you've never really wrestled with Christianity because it's not easy. I mean, if you really take this seriously and you start wrestling with, you know, what science has to say on some matters or just some of the, you know, why do bad things happen to good people or some of the things that happen in the Old Testament. I mean, if you really think about this and you go, man, I really want to think about the practical implications of this, what the Bible teaches, it's tough stuff. I mean, it's, it's not easy. And so what I've said is the kids that have questions, I think that's an indicator of people that take it seriously. And the kids that don't always have questions, I'm like, I just don't know if they really, really wrestled. Now, with that said, I do think personalities come into this. So Lindsay is my wife. She, it doesn't bother her. Like if, if there was a Yahoo article about, you know, some evolutionary find or something like that, she would read it and just go, no, that's not true. Wouldn't bother her at all. It would keep me up for weeks and I would have to do research and I would have to think through it. And so I think a mistake sometimes we apologists make is that we assume everybody's like ourselves. But I think sometimes the mistake that the church makes, the big church, is that they assume nobody's like us. And what I would say is that there are people like me, and then there are some people who aren't like me. And so I think we have to minister to those who do have questions. Um, And I think we need to prepare those who maybe don't, but also to realize that there's different ways to come to faith. And so um, I heard a great illustration from the late Robbie Zacharias a couple months ago, and he just talked about, you know, there's different ways into the church. And, you know, some people come through faith and some people come through experience and some people come through evidence and reason. Um, some people come through relationships. And so I think we have to respect all of those different pathways to faith. So to just a clarifying question, um, you're talking about people coming to faith and in the Bible, there's one way. So can you, can you explain that? So that way it's not misunderstood. Like, Oh, there's all these ways to come to Christ. That's a, that's a great thing. So what I would say to that is there's one way to come to faith and relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, his son. But the way that you understand that is different for certain people. And so just like certain people have heard the gospel in different languages, I think that there are different languages in the way that we think. And so some people will say, I'll say, tell me your story. And they'll say, well, I was at camp when I was a 13 year old. And uh, man, I was just so moved by the experience that that's when I gave my life to Christ. And some people will say, you know what? I was sitting in a classroom and somebody just made it so clear that Jesus had to rise from the dead and the evidence was overwhelming for me. And that's when I placed my faith in Jesus. Somebody will say, you know what? I don't know. I've just always kind of believed. Like I've always just, I've just always known internally that, that Jesus was the son of God. And so for them, what I think they're telling you is their pathways of thinking, not their pathways to God, but their pathways of thinking about God. Thank you for clarifying. So if someone did have questions, like you were saying, Farron, questions aren't bad. Questions are good. We want you to ask questions. That means you're getting involved and you're trying to understand where would you point them if Google's not always the best resource? Yeah, I I think that's where, honestly, um, 
I read an article several years ago about this, but they were saying that how parents in the 21st century really need to be studying apologetics just because we're crazy to think that our kids are not going to be asking these questions. Um, I, I just think the narrative for them has changed so much. And so Josh McDowell did a, a study several, several, oh, he reported on a study several years ago from InterVarsity. And this was back in, I think, the 80s. And they said, if somebody didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ by the age of 18, the odds of them becoming a Christian were like, you know, minuscule, like a few percentage points or something. They're saying now that it's at the age of 13. If people don't make a profession of faith by the age of 13. And he went on to talk about this, you know, uh, before kind of, you know, the dawn of the Internet, mom and dad could control the narrative. And then when the kid went off to college, it's like you had these competing voices and you had these other ideas out there. But now at 13, these kids are getting on the Internet and they're hearing about, different ideas and they're hearing it from people that mom and dad are like, we've never met this person. We've never invited them over to our house. We've never had them over for dinner. And so I really think that it starts with our parents who are just going, you know what, maybe this isn't my journey. Maybe I don't have these doubts, but to think that one of your children wouldn't have questions. I, I really think you're playing Russian roulette. I really think you're gambling with your kids, just their pathway. And so uh, Christian Smith, he wrote a book called, uh, soul searching. He's a researcher at uh, University of Notre Dame. Fascinating book. But he said that they um, they interviewed kids who had gone to Christian church, grown up in the Christian faith, um, kind of really been those model kids. And they said these kids, you know, the kids that they pulled walked away from the Christian faith. And 33% of them said the reason they walked away was because nobody answered their questions. And so I think you can make a really good case at about one out of three who walk away it really comes down to these questions of faith and science, apologetics, difficult ideas that they haven't wrestled with. That makes sense. I mean, my four-year-old asks why all the time. So it would only make sense that she would also ask why about faith as well. So is there an apologetics book like for entry level that's an quote unquote, easy read that wouldn't be overwhelming or intimidating. Yeah. How, how to equip the parent for this. Yeah. So yes to no. So, I, so here's this, I, there's a book that I love. It's called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist by Frank Turek. And uh, I think it's the most phenomenal book out there. Um, however, I've done a couple of these talks with camps or churches or different groups. And um, every, inevitably afterwards, several kids come up and they say, Hey, what's the next step? you know, kind of what you've asked. And I've recommended this book. And um, it has not been very, uh, it's not that it hasn't been received well, but, but the students would, you know, follow up a month later and they say, oh, I read the first two chapters, you know, but then I, you know, I kind of, you know, put it away. And, uh, and, and for a while I was really discouraged by that. But then I started thinking, I mean, it's a 350 page book talking about science and philosophy. And so honestly, I don't think there's a really great intro book out there um, I, I started to write one several years ago because I felt like that was a gap in the kind of the Christian circle. And um, I, just, I mean, I haven't done it yet, but I, I do think that there's something missing there, something that somebody could read in one hour and kind of go, okay, that's good. So um, people typically refer to the book More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, which I think is a great book. I mean, it's a phenomenal book. It's over a million copies sold, but that really just focuses on the questions of Jesus and so, but, but I think the challenge is, is, I mean, you're trying to, how do you simplify something that's not simple, you know? So 
I don't know. I think that's something we've got to get figured out on the apologetics scene. All right. Your first draft is yeah. due to us in about a yeah. month and we are happy <laughs> to be on your launch team and we, we got your back. I know a publisher. So the first draft has been done for about two years. It's the fear of failure that's holding me back. See, I'm an Enneagram three. So it's just, we can help you with that too. Yeah. I'm going to need that. <laughs> but that's the great part about switch on your brain. Like you were saying, it's the science and the scripture and it marries those two. So I think a lot of times it can be overwhelming. My kid's going to ask all these questions and I don't know the answer, but even if we do take scripture and just memorizing it is one of her suggestions, Dr. Carolyn Leaf, that's at least going to help give us something to think about her. Let me go look that up real quick. Is there yeah. scripture about not asking your parents so many questions? <laughs> Quit asking me why. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, you know, one of the greatest things you can do as, as a teacher and as a parent, I think is admitting you don't know those answers and modeling for your kids. Hey, that's a great question. Let's, let's figure out how to do that. And so, um, you know, obviously Googling, but if they see you doing that, they're going to do that. And so maybe going, Hey, let's, let's read this book together or let's go talk to this person. And honestly, in the last year or two, there have been a lot of really good apologetics books that have come out for kids. And um, one's written by a lady named Natasha Kane and it's, it's phenomenal. And so she really breaks some of these difficult questions down into some simple ideas for parents. And so um, I think we're getting better at that and we're recognizing that. And once again, I just, you know, I think we all assume the way we grew up is the way our kids are going to grow up. And we have to recognize that the world is changing so fast. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, if, if somebody said, hey, the Bible says, that was the end of the conversation. And now that's not even the beginning. I mean, you say that to somebody and they go, well, I don't believe the Bible to be true. You know, and that, and that can even be a Christian that's saying that to you. And so we have to think differently about it. If we assume that people take the Bible at face value, like they did 20, 30 years ago, I think we're making a big mistake. Now, I wish they did, but I just don't think they do. That is a very good point. So what does the Bible say about your thought life, your mindset? Again, Switch on Your Brain talks a lot about your thought life and your mindset. So if we're talking about apologetics, talking about our mindset, talking about trying to become better Christians, trying to raise kids to become Christians, or even if they're past the age 13, how to reel them back in. So what does the Bible say about your mindset, your thought life, and what does that kind of look like day to day? Yeah, I think there's several dominant passages. So Proverbs 23, 7 is one of the more famous one, as a man thinketh, so he is. And so I know Carolyn Leaf refers to that one in her book. I think that's a great one. I really do believe that the way that we think about something shapes our future. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I told this story about how once, how Harper, she's my youngest and she's, she's a challenger, she's an eight. And so she's always pushing those limits. And uh, I joked about how we're always having to correct her, but I'm really afraid that there's going to be a day where like she's in class and they're like calling her name, like Harper Paris. And she's like, my name's Harper. No, or Harper, stop that. Or Harper, say you're sorry or something. Um, because we say that all the time. And, but, but the thing that scares me is, am I telling her present story or am I shaping her future reality? And I think that scares me is because I do think the ideas that we let marinate in our head really create our future and create our present. So that's one that I, I go back to a lot. Uh, you referred to um, the passage in Second Corinthians where, um, you know, take captive every single thought. 
Um, I think that's a huge one that Christians need to think about. And the funny thing is, I think we really misinterpret that verse because I think we, um, we think about like, oh, that's a great verse for guys and having lustful thoughts or something like that, which I'm not saying it doesn't apply to that, but I think it was much, much broader than that. I think Paul was just saying, you need to think true things and right things and noble things. And that's across all the board. He's not even just talking about sinful things. He's not saying, hey, don't think about sinful things. He's saying, think about truthful things. And that is in every spectrum, not just morality. Yes. So how is that going to look in your daily life? If I'm trying to take thoughts captive or really try to process through what's, what's coming into my head during the day or the season of life, I know right now we're recording during the time of COVID. So being secluded for a lot of people is really hard for them, especially if they're, they're the seven, they want to go out and do things, but they can't. So what would you, what advice do you have for us or our listeners on what does that look like in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I would say, so my answer is probably not going to be what people are wanting to hear. And, and I, what I mean by that is I think people would say like, well, what's a verse or, or maybe what's a good application? What I would say is that you probably have to start laying that groundwork and you may not see the fruit for months or years to come. And so I think when people think about a biblical mindset and a framework, they have to realize they're going to do a lot of spending time in God's word and they may not see it come to fruition for a long period of time. And that's okay. And so the way I look at it is the more time that I spend in scripture, there are things that are being built into my head. And so when I'm having a conversation or I'm watching TV or I'm talking to something, red flags are going up in my head all the time because I've got scriptural truth memorized, but I'm not realizing it, but, but, I, but it's ingrained in there. And so what I think people need to understand is that it's not, oh, I just need to read this book or I just need to start tomorrow. It's like, well, you need to start tomorrow, but you may not realize the impact it has for a couple of years. And so if you think, hey, I'm going to start tomorrow and I'm going to have a worldview that's Christian in two weeks, you're, you're not. Like, you're just not going to. Like, it's going to be a lot of planting and harvesting way down the road. And so I think in the microwave generation we live, people want it right away. And I think scripture is just birthed in this idea of just, it's going to be a crock pot and you're going to marinate in it for long periods of time. And then there will be a day when somebody says something and a verse you memorized two and a half years ago will pop in your head and you'll be like, where did that come from? And sometimes people will say stuff and I don't, I'm not saying this isn't true, but they'll be like, the Lord gave me a verse. And I'm like, well, yeah, he did. But you also did the work of, you know, building that verse into your head. And so I, I like to say this, salvation is free, but a Christian worldview will cost you. And what I mean by that is you got to earn it. You got to, you got to read, you got to study, you got to think, you got to go and talk to your pastor. You got to pay attention on Sunday morning. You got to take notes. You got to rehearse those notes. Like you don't just become a Christian and then God puts this information in your head, like the matrix. He's like, okay, you're saved by grace. Now figure out how to live. Sounds a whole lot like parenting. Yeah. <laughs> they send you home with a baby. Yeah. And you're like, huh? Yeah. I like yeah. Yeah. You described like you're not going to see the fruitions till later. Um, Atomic Habits by James Clear gives the analogy of being in a freezer with an ice cube. And as the temperature goes from 26 to 27 to 28 degrees, you're not seeing that ice cube start to melt. 
Yeah. From, you know, 31, 32, 33, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you start see something, seeing something yeah. happen. So I like that analogy. And um, if you want, if our listeners want to know a little bit about how we try to get into scripture, we have um, a blog on an app called the Daily Daily Audio Bible. That's the one that I enjoy listening to. Ditto. Ditto. Yes. And there are other ones too. So if that seems very overwhelming and you're not sure where to start, I love the audio versions because sometimes I get hung up on pronouncing all the names and the towns and the cities. And the best part is he summarizes um, the scripture that he's read that day. So if you've tuned out, you can check back in and still, you know, get a little bit of gold from that time spent. And also, like you were saying, Joe, it's going to take time over the course. Like you might not recognize it's happening until it's happening. So her, Dr. Carolyn Leaf's strategy, the 21 day switch on your brain detox plan. She talks about you put all this work in and you barely see a change at day 21. And then you've got to keep going. And she talks about how in you can have 17 21 day detoxes a year. Yeah. She talks about how you need to keep going. You need to keep pressing on because again, like you were saying, you were just talking about how you have stuff stored in your non-conscious. So that's what she talks about in the book too. Stuff is stored in your non-conscious and it is going to be the red flags like you were talking about. So let's drop some quantum physics on these people. <laughs> I love how you Yes. That's, that's what they want. Give the people what they want. Yes. The quantum Zeno effect. And that is the repetition, the repeated effort that causes learning to take place. So there's the science people. Yes. Repetition, repetition. Memorizing repetition. I love it. I was gonna I was gonna say, you know, for the listener out there, I think a lot of people will go. Well, that sounds like a lot of work with very apparent payoff. What I'll do is when I don't know what to do, then I'll just, I'll I'll look for an answer. And I think that would work. But what I would caution them with is that there are things that they are, there are ideas that they are coming contact with every single day that they don't even know that they need to challenge them. And so if it was as simple as, hey, whenever you hear a contrary idea to scripture, then you should look it up. But what I would say is there are so many contrary ideas out there right now that you don't even know how much you are being influenced by culture to think against scripture. And so once again, I think the Bible makes it very clear. We are foreigners and aliens in a foreign land. Like this this place it is not built for us. It was not designed for us. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four says, the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Like everything is working towards an agenda to take us away from Christ. And so we are behind enemy lines. So if we think that we can just kind of patsy through this world and not end up unaffected, like you're dead. Like you're just, you're not going to make it like, and I'm not saying you're going to lose your faith or you're going to do something grievous, but you are not going to think with the mind of Christ. And yeah. so when, when people are like, I just don't know what happened to that person. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how did you, where, where are you confused at this on? Like they were taking no active steps to protect themselves. Of course they were just, I mean, it was easy pickings. It really was. So what I hear you saying is people have the idea of a reactive approach instead of mm-hmm. proactive, but even yes. in the mindset, they're missing 
all those times to be reactive. Like if that was their mindset, they would still need to spend time in the word daily because they're receiving the, this onslaught of, you know. Well, um, and it's a great illustration. Two days before the hurricane touches down, what are people doing? Batting down the hatches, blocking up windows, closing doors, shutting down shop, leaving the town. Nobody goes, oh, it's starting to rain. Hey, we should probably get on this. Because at that point, it's too late. And, and that's what I would say with people is that, that, listen, if you think that when your marriage is on the rocks, that you're going to go to church and it's going to be like, dude, you lost two years ago. Like you needed to be preparing for this. You needed to be thinking about this. When the weather was sunny and shining and everything looked great, that's when you were preparing for the storm. And I just think there's way too much reactive, like, oh, we'll figure it out when it gets here. And the truth is by that point, you're already, I mean, you, you've lost at that point, unfortunately. It's like fitness. You have to keep going to the gym to stay healthy. You can't just be like, I'm done for the life. <laughs> Same thing with it sneaking up on you too. You don't realize how out of shape you are until you try to go up the flight of stairs. There's a, a two-level target. Oh, I can't yeah. get up there. Yeah. Or like when you turn 30 something and your metabolism just goes, no. <laughs> no, I'm done. Okay. So how can knowing scripture embed truth into your heart and mind? You've already kind of touched on this, but do you have any tactics you mentioned memorizing scripture and how that can just start working in your non-conscious. What, what's your approach or what have some other people tried? A follow-up question too. Like, I guess the importance, like if you consider yourself to be a believer, yeah. then what's, then why do you need to memorize scripture? If you're not giving the sermon on Sunday, I'm already saved. if you're not leading Bible study at, you know, on Sundays, again, some people might have the, I mean, I believe that's for people that, you know, don't. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll go back to that statement I said just a few minutes ago. Salvation is free, but a biblical mindset is going to cost you. Um, and so what I would say to that person is research says that the average person makes about 3000 decisions a day. And so you think about just the implications of all the decisions you make on a daily basis. Some of them are really minute. Some of them are really big. But if you're making 3,000 decisions a day and then you think about the people that you're impacting, especially if you are a parent, um, I would want to have the best minds informing me, which I think is the word of God. I mean, if, it's funny that we say the word of God. And if you really break that down, we literally have God's words to us about how we should live and think and act. And I think we just gloss over that because we hear it so much like, oh, it's God's word. And it's like, no, literally God took time to say, hey, I want you to know this because it's going to help you in life. But I do think that people think it's just about getting saved. My response to that would be, um, well, if it was just about you getting saved, then why does God keep you around for the next 60, 70, 80 years? You know, and so Second Timothy talks about you're saved for good works. But, but I really think that the Bible, the Bible's message is about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of other pages in there with some really good instruction on how to have the best possible life. And I think we have a misunderstanding about sin. I think people look at sin as good or bad. And I think sin is probably more about wise and unwise that God says, hey, you should do these things because it's really smart and I love my children and I want you to have a good life. Um, but if you don't do these things, like there's just consequences. So when you lie, like, it's not that I'm mad at you for lying. It's just that I realize that's going to cause a lot of problems for you. Like, people aren't going to trust you. People aren't going to like you. 
And, and I often wonder times if we did that more with our kids explaining why we think the way that we think rather than just being arbitrary, like it's wrong. Like, just don't do it. Like, why would you be a liar? Like, that's just crazy. Why would you even ask that question? Just listen to mom and dad. I think if we processed and explained the wisdom behind it, people would buy in more and go, oh yeah, that, that does make sense. It's not about this arbitrary, like this is good, this is bad, but to go, this is what's going to give you the best life. And this is what's going to cost you life. And so. So what are the benefits? Like, have you, aside from like just growing closer to God and being able to take down atheism, <laughs> what other like secondary benefits have you seen in um, either yourself or when other people have studied scripture and it translates into their daily lives. Yeah. So I think, and you, and I know you were, you were kind of joking, but I think a lot of people think that like, oh, I would just study this, but I'm never going to debate an atheist. So I don't really need to do that. And I'm like, I've debated like two atheists in my life. Like that's never a thing, but I need to realize that every single day there are ideas that are coming into my head that are contrary to scripture. And those ideas are shaping the way that I live. They're shaping the way that I think. I heard somebody say this years ago, right ideas lead to right living. Wrong ideas lead to wrong living. And so this is, this is crazy. Think about this. So there are people we know, friends, family members, whatever, who are doing some wrong things. We see and we're going, man, I just don't understand why they're doing that. They're killing themselves. And here's the thing. They literally believe what they are doing is right. They're not self-sabotaging. They're not going, this is the dumbest thing I could do. I'm going to keep doing it. They literally believe in their heads what they are doing is the best thing for them. And so I was telling my students this once, and I was saying, you know, people that make immoral decisions, high school students, drinking, smoking pot, having sex, whatever, even though they'll go, yeah, I know it's not the right thing to do. If you press them, they would on some level go, honestly, Ms. Paris, I think it's good. I really do think this is good. It takes off the edge. It makes me feel good. I'm accepted, whatever it is. But they on some level believe it is a good idea to do that. They'll tell you, oh, I know it's not right. But on a, on a deeper level, they think what they are doing is best. And that's an idea. It all boils down to ideas. We want to think that people make bad decisions because they're bad people. They don't make bad decisions because they're bad people. They make bad decisions because they believe bad ideas. That's good. I like how you talked about going, what's deeper there? What's under the surface of that? Like, that's the symptom. What is the condition underneath it? So we want to treat yeah. the condition, not the symptom. And, I yeah, think- and, and you know, I think it goes back to when in the first century, um, you know, the, the New Testament authors really always referred to the heart of a person, you know, the heart of a person. In the first century, the idea of the heart wasn't this, wasn't the, um, you know, what we think of now, the emotions. It was the center of thinking. And so I remember when we made this switch of the school I used to teach at, I got a little bit of pushback because people were saying, all you want to do is talk about ideas. All you want to do is talk about the mind. We got to talk about the heart of these kids. And what I responded back was the reason these kids are making bad decisions isn't because they have bad hearts. It's because they have bad thinking. They really believe what they're doing is best. And so we have to change their thinking, but we reduce it down to, we've got to massage their hearts. We've got to create this new heart in them. And I'm like, yes, but we also have to recognize that they are, before you ever do anything, you have a thought about it. And that goes back to 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive. I love it. And her science also proves that. She has hooked people up to the machines and 
in the what, what's the top the top of your brain whatever the top of the brain is that is firing off and she's discovered that that's the non-conscious and that's the the non-conscious thought and then it's the thought and then it's the action so yeah. exactly what you said I think too you're that there's got to be people in our audience that have kids or family members like you said that are like going down a path and seem to be self-sabotaging and they want to love them through it which I'm not saying you shouldn't but they want to almost I'm going to use this word some people enable because they yep. love and they're like, if I show them that I care, they'll make these changes. And they don't understand why the person won't change for them because they love each other. But they're not addressing, like you said, the, the mind. And so I really appreciate you sharing that because um, I think, like you said, we all know somebody, especially like on Facebook, we might be creeping on somebody, <laughs> not me, but, um, you know, other people might. So I like that you distinguish between the mind and the heart there. Well, you know, so, so I think it was three years ago, um, Lola, I, I was I was actually speaking at a conference in Cleveland and I got back um, and it was like one or two in the morning and Lola was asleep on the couch because she was fighting a fever. And so I went to bed and like literally like three minutes later, Lindsay's calling out my name and Lola was having a feverish seizure. And so it's pretty scary for us because I mean, I had no idea what was going on. And my brother-in-law is an ER doctor. And so we're like, hey, do we call him and to kind of get some reference points? And uh, so we called him at like two in the morning. He kind of explained what was going on, what we probably should do. Um, and, you know, here's the thing. My brother-in-law, he loves us. He cares about us. Um, but that moment, I don't want him to tell me what I want to hear. I want him to tell me what I need to know. And I think we have to remember as Christians, the most loving thing that we can do is tell people truth. And I know, and once again, that can be packaged in really wrong ways because some people are like, they're so truthful, but they're just jerks. And I'm like, it's not that. But, but I also think there's this push in Christendom where it's like, no, why, don't tell us what you think. And it's like, well, that's not really loving. Like when I go to the doctor, like if I have cancer cells growing in my body, it doesn't help me for him to ignore that. It only helps me if he goes, hey, man doesn't look good. Like we got to get going. Like we got to, we got to move in the right direction. And um, I think we still need to remember that the most loving thing we can do is tell people the truth, but man, seasoned with grace and love and all of those things. So, but I don't, I think we're moving away from that in the church today. It's, it's getting so hard to not just be blasted for, for speaking the truth. That's hard. So how does a healthy mindset and spiritual growth align? So we talk about in We've talked about this book. We've talked about what the, the thinking and the ideas that come from the thoughts and the actions that come from the ideas come from the thoughts. So how do a healthy mindset and spiritual growth align and how can we do that? Yeah. So I think there's some things and I've been really convicted about this lately. Um, especially if you've been a Christian long enough, you can think of all of, I guess, what you would call the spiritual disciplines. So you're like, reading your Bible, taking notes during Sunday morning, reviewing those notes, memorizing scripture, you know, listening to worship music. Um, and then you, people go, oh yeah, I know all that. I know all that. And then you go, okay, so do you do them? And you're like, well, no, I don't do them. But like, I mean, I know you should. And it's like, once again, going back to your gym illustration, like if you don't go to the gym, like it doesn't matter if you have a membership, it doesn't matter if you have the magazine, like it only matters what you do. 
And, and I'm convicting myself because there's so many times where I'm like, I haven't memorized scripture in months, years, whatever, you know? And it's like, I haven't, I mean, I sat through that sermon, but I didn't take any notes. And the research says that I'll probably remember about 5% of what I heard if I don't take notes and review, you know, just stuff like that. So I just think that where those two can align is probably doing the things we know we ought to do instead of just thinking of them as ideal. And, and once again, but I think it goes back to, we really believe that we are living in a safe place and we're not. The Bible tells us that, that the, the devil is a roaring lion looking to devour and he's just waiting. I, I read a book the other day. The guy was saying, you know, I, th- I believe that God waits for the second half of most people's lives to destroy it. You know, and I just turned 40 and I'm just thinking, okay, it's probably going to happen here. Like the attack by Satan probably hasn't happened yet. It's probably coming when I start to think, oh, I'm good. Like I, I'm 40 years old. I've made it this far. I'll be fine. I'll put my feet up. I'll relax. And I just think we have to always be ready, always staying close to God to just realize, hey, it is the attack is coming. We need to be ready. But we get comfortable. And I think we, you know, we lose perspective. You may have touched on this just now. So we might just edit this part out. But why do you think, why is that breakdown in spiritual growth specifically? So we talk a lot about personal growth, but we always like to bring it back to spiritual growth as well. What do you think the breakdown is from good intentions, the desire to do better and grow, and then it doesn't happen? (laughs) Yeah. Well, the funny thing is you answered this a while ago when you said, I think people see the goal of Christianity as getting saved. That's what we talk about. Hey, we got to get this person saved. And once again, salvation is the starting point. Like that's, that's the beginning. It's not the end, but people see it as the end. Hey, we got this person saved, which is really good, but that's like being like, Hey, we got married and that's it. No, like your marriage day is the starting line of you cultivating a marriage together, building a relationship, building a trust, fighting through things, working to better one another, learning to grow together, learning to die to self. And I think we have so venerated in the Christian church, the idea of just getting people saved that we forgot to grow them spiritually. And um, I think there's an idea out there that when we get to heaven, um, everybody's going to be the same. And I don't think that's true. I think through the book of Revelation, you see progressive knowledge. And so for the person who gets saved on their deathbed, they're not going to get to heaven and be like, Paul, what's up? Like, oh man, I loved your book to the church in Thessalonica. Like he's gonna be like, now, who are you? You're, oh, oh, you wrote a book of the Bible. You know, like we forget that like there is going to be intimacy in how much you knew the father. There's gonna be intimacy with Jesus Christ based on what you did here on earth. And so I, I just think we have made salvation the end goal and it's not, it's the starting point. And then this is something I'm really wrestling with myself personally. I think we have goals to be smarter. We have goals to be financially more secure. We have goals to be healthy. Most people, starting with myself, we do not have goals to be more holy. And so we don't, we don't talk, you know, I mean, I think you guys could probably remember this. I remember hearing this all the time growing up about, man, he was one of the most godly men I ever met. I mean, he just, he just knew scripture. He just had a calm spirit about him. I don't know if we talk about those virtues anymore. And, and I wonder if we've lost the sense of 
You know, I mean, like, wow, he was the best basketball player ever. Wow, he was the richest person I ever knew. Do we talk about to our children, you know what, at the end of your life, if you could be like him, he was one of the most godly people I've ever met. And not, not like in a surface way, like, because we all say that, like, if you make it past the age of 85, you're the most godly person that ever lived, you know, because that's what people say. But there are certain people out there that you just go, man, like, I can't even explain it to you, but the depth of character and peace this person had, it was unparalleled, you know? And so I wonder if we started venerating that, people would aspire to be that. I like what I'm hearing you say is kind of for universal explanation is like having a strong enough why. And so again, if your why is to be saved, but then you know you're saved through your faith, then it's kind of hard to have that, you know, internal motivation. So working on your why, maintaining a relationship with God, I think our church does a really good job of saying, you know, salvation is not the end goal. That's like you said, the starting line and then giving illustrations of maintaining a relationship. So, you know, I wouldn't have dated a guy that like we went on a first date and he, you know, we're going steady for old terms, (laughs) dating, but he never talked to me. I never saw maybe a text every two weeks when he needed something. It's like, That, that's not a relationship. So again, maybe our listeners can change their why and reframe that to have more success. And I think we, when we talk about, so what somebody may have heard there as they're listening to this podcast is almost shame and guilt. Like, yeah, you're right, Farron. I should be better about reading my Bible. And, and what I would say is, no, you saw that as an obligation. And what we want to convey is an opportunity that you, you don't have, listen, if you don't want to read your Bible, that's fine. You don't have to read your Bible. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to miss out on something so great and so rich. And I wonder how many people kind of just are like, yeah, Christianity is okay. And I'm like, you are doing like the bare minimum. Like you put one foot into the park at Disney and gave your assessment of it. Like, that's crazy. Like if you want to say if something's really good, give it a full shot. You know, there's this famous quote. I don't remember who said it, but I think it was G.K. Chesterton. But he said, Christianity has not been found, um, you know, oh, I'm going to butcher it. Christianity has not been found, you know, wanting. Christianity has been found untried, you know, and, and just the idea that most people I don't think ever experience the richness of God. And then they tell you about how it's kind of boring. And yeah. I'm like, I promise you, nobody in the Old Testament or New Testament ever said that faith was boring. You know, Paul was not like, eh, it was okay. You know, I mean, he was like, man, it was crazy, but it was awesome. And if you haven't been to Disney World, like you get in, but it's still like another football field to actually like get to the park stuff. So yeah. that analogy resonated with, that's a really good analogy. <laughs> I was thinking the beach, you go and you put your feet yeah. in, you're like, ah, ocean's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you go out there. How do yeah. You- C.S. Lewis has a great quote in Mere Christianity where he says, we are too far hard at fools. We have settled for mud puddles when we could have, um, you know, a holiday at the sea. You know, and just the idea of like, we have settled for so little with our relationship with Christ and we miss out. And once again, once again, people will hear this and feel shame and guilt and like I ought to do better. And what I would tell you is you are missing out on the adventure of your life. Like it's so much better than it's so much better than anything you envision. A retirement, you know, a retirement in the mountains, 
um, a, a large house in the woods, all these things you imagine pale in comparison to the richness of a relationship with Christ. Um, but you have to experience that. So how do we know we're doing it right? So what is our, how does our relationship with Christ affect us and how does or affect others around us and how should it affect the others around us if we're doing all these things, but also how do we know we're doing it right? Yeah. So I, I think, um, like I said, I think there's some spiritual disciplines that have just been classic throughout time, memorizing scripture, reading God's word, listening to, um, you know, Christian music, um, communicating with other believers, being faithful in attendance in church. I think those are some of the, the metrics and some of the things you can measure. Um, but I also think the Bible gives us some indicators, you know, the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are some things that come out. Um, but I, I would say maybe even more than that, it's, it's the relationships, it's the feedback, but I also don't want to put it into a, I don't want to make it too quantifiable because I think God's got all of us on a different journey. And so God may be working on things in me that he's not working on you or anybody else. And I just don't think you get that by going to church or by reading a book. I think that's in quiet moments, just talking to him and just going, Hey, what do you want from me right now? Like, what do you see from me? And what we see throughout scripture is he's not in a hurry to answer it. And he's not going to make it abundantly clear right away. And I think we are so fast. We want a soundbite. We want a clip. We want an article. We want a, a tidbit. And I think God's in the process of just slow with us, you know? So I was reading in um, Exodus chapter 17 yesterday, and it's just talking about, you know, just sitting before the Lord. And I just think we just don't do that well nowadays. And I wonder if we just took five minutes a day and just sat, didn't think, didn't listen, didn't try to text and do a million things at once, how much God would have for us to grow and to push us. I love it. Yeah. I love that. You know, sometimes we play this comparison game, right? So we're like, Oh, well they must be doing it right. Or what am I doing wrong? So I love that you talked about how God's doing something different in you than others. And so again, the comparison game is never a fun one to play. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to share or that we didn't maybe get to that you want to be sure to include in our podcast today or any final thought? I think, um, you know, just one thing that, that I was thinking as I was preparing for this was I think there is the idea out there that science and faith are not compatible and that if you believe in science, you can't be a Christian or if you're a Christian then you better tread lightly into the scientific world. And what I would say to that, I think Dr. Carolyn Leaf is a wonderful example of, I don't think that science is against Christianity. I think science is, uh, is an advocate, is a proponent in its purest form. It should, it will push people to God. And so I think some people would say, you know, I was a Christian and then I got into the scientific, you know, realm and I lost my faith. And I would say there are just as number of people who were not Christians who got into the scientific realm and they came to faith. And so when you think about some of the, the greatest thinkers of all time, I mean, when you think about Copernicus, Bacon, Kepler, um, when you think about Blaise Pascal, Descartes, Galileo, 
these guys were all grafted and thought of God as the center. And that, that motivated them to look for the patterns and the reasons behind things. And so I think in the 21st century, it's almost been like, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, you better check your brains at the door. You better not try to become a scientist. You just need to not worry about those things. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think we have an opportunity. Um, you know, Romans chapter one and, and Psalms, I'm, I'm blanking on it. Psalms 19, I think. The heavens declare the glories of God. You know, I think there's no, I think when we don't appreciate science, we're missing on an attribute of God that we could worship him through. I love it. That's good. Well, thank you, Dr. Joe Paris, for coming on the show today. You were awesome. And thank thanks you so much. for letting us borrow your husband tonight. <laughs> I will let her know. This concludes the, this concludes the mini series of Switch on Your Brain. So you're the closer, Joe. Good job. Way to go out with that thing. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so stay tuned, you guys, for our next mini-series. We'll be sending out a freebie in the email, so make sure your newsletter subscriber. Again, this is episode 62, our interview with Joe Paris, covering apologetics, Christianity, science, life, thoughts, <laughs> ideas. Everything. <laughs> you did it all. Okay, so Joe, don't go away, and we are going to pause this. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Witty and Gritty podcast. Join us at wittyandgritty.blog, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, check out our blog, and listen to more episodes. And don't forget to get your freebie that's designed just for this miniseries. If you have any questions, reach out. We'll be right there.